Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 17 to 26. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is a gift to be with you. Uh, it truly is. Thanks to Pastor Rebecca for the invitation. Thanks for the prayer, Pastor Justin. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know this Lenten season, uh, Pastor Rebecca and I are, are going to take turns living with some questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels as a way of staying in conversation with him uh, throughout Lent. And today we're going to live inside this story. You just heard a few verses uh, about it uh, a couple minutes ago, inside the 11th chapter of John. Here we have a story that has to do with Jesus's friendship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, three siblings who live in the town of Bethany. We heard those verses uh, Karina read for us a couple minutes ago that are right, right in the middle of the story. Maybe you'll give me a minute. We can go back and, and set the scene, starting with verse 1. This chapter begins, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha, parentheses, this Martha, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So we have these two sisters and a brother living in the town of Beth, uh, Bethany. And we first meet them, you're, you probably, as soon as you hear Mary and Martha, you're thinking of that iconic story, the dinner party, where Mary is sitting with Jesus and Martha's working. That actually happens in, in Luke 10, and it probably takes place about four months before this story. And then this passage mentions, you know, this is Mary, the one who wiped Jesus' uh, feet with perfume and, and wiped them with her hair. That's actually not going to happen until the next chapter, but it's made her so famous that when John's telling the story, he's saying, you know, Mary, the one, the one who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with his hair. Jesus has a very special relationship with this family, these two sisters and this brother. Uh, he has a deep affection for them. In case we miss this, in, in verse 5, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And I kind of like that John led with Martha here, just in case we think from the other story that he preferred Mary. He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. An interesting aside, too, some scholars, when they really look at this text, they've postulated that Lazarus may very well have had a, a long-term intellectual or physical disability. And I think that's really interesting. Apparently, the word, the Greek word used for sick here is a word that sort of means... Um, uh, weak or without strength or uh, probably in today's language we would 
we would translate that verse one, now Lazarus was disabled. And there's some other evidence for that, the fact that Martha seems to be the head of the household, which would have been unusual with a brother in the home. There are no recorded conversations uh, with Lazarus. And there's something I just speaks to the tenderness of Jesus, how special this family was for him. Uh, but whether or not that, that theory is, is true, that Lazarus may have been disabled, regardless, we know that Jesus really loved this family. And there's at least a couple dinner parties recorded uh, in the Gospels of time he spent with them. It was kind of a home away from home. So when Lazarus gets deathly ill, the sisters send word asking Jesus to come heal him. However, by the time Jesus arrives in their town, Lazarus has already been dead for four days, and Mary and Martha are devastated. So picking up the story at verse 21, Jesus finally arrives four days after Lazarus has been placed in the tomb. Lord Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answers, okay, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And again, we're just revisiting those words we heard a few minutes ago because they're so important. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by, <laughs> whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? Your brother's been in the tomb for four days. Do you believe this? Or more simply, do you believe? So we want to press pause right here and imagine that moment. Imagine you are Martha. You'd been so sure that Jesus would come in time and heal your brother before he died. But Jesus didn't come until your brother had been dead for four days. And now Jesus asks you, do you believe? How would you answer? Even more importantly, just imagine Jesus, of course, is with us in this room. But imagine that he walked in in his earthly body and he sat down next to you. And he looked you in the eyes and he said, do you believe all this? That song you sang about my sweet, sweet love, do you believe it? Do you really believe? Do you believe in me? Do you trust me? How would you answer? As we sit with this question and as we let Jesus invite us into this conversation about belief, I want to invite us to notice four things that may help us have this conversation with Jesus. I was telling my husband, Mark, on the way in, I know you shouldn't do more than three things. All, all the good preachers do three things. Uh, last week I did five things. I just, I can't help myself. I'm sorry. There's at least four things I got to point out. So just hang in there with me, okay? Here's the first thing. The first thing I think is very striking is that Jesus invites honesty about our belief and about our doubts. I'm struck by Jesus' invitation. Remember last week he asked, what are you looking for? He asks these questions. He's such a good friend. He's such a good spiritual director. He asks these questions that ask us if we'll honestly engage them, if we're not just trying to immediately spout out the correct answer. He asks us these questions that invite us to really look into our hearts, 
to examine our belief and our unbelief and our faith and our doubt. This is a common question for Jesus. Think of, of Peter walking on the water and then taking his eyes off Jesus, starting to sink. Matthew 14, 31, Jesus says to Peter, why did you doubt? You know, I think he says, oh, you of little faith, or he says that in one of the stormy uh, passages. And I have a friend who thinks that that was one of Jesus' nicknames for his friends. Oh, you little faiths. <laughs> you little faiths. My pals. Luke 24, 38, Jesus has risen from the dead himself, and he shows up to some very startled disciples, and he says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? When I used to read these questions from Jesus in the Gospels, I used to hear them as uh, tests, things I better get the right answer to. So when I put myself in Martha's place in the story, I feel all this pressure, like, oh, I got to get this answer right. I don't want to let Lazarus down. I don't want to let Jesus down. But the more I keep company with Jesus in the Gospels, the more I think that these, it's more consistent to see these questions from Jesus as invitations than as tests. If you have kids in your lives and a kid is scared in the middle of the night and you come in and you say, why are you afraid? It's not a test. That's not a judgment. That's an invitation. Tell me why you're afraid so we can talk it out. So when Jesus says, do you believe? Maybe he's giving you a chance. Maybe he's giving me a chance to listen to our own hearts and talk it out with him. So can we be honest when he asks us this question? Do you believe? So there's probably a few different categories of folks in this room and watching at home right now. Some of you have probably never really worked through this one way or the other. When Jesus asks you, do you believe, your answer is maybe something like, can I get back to you? <laughs> if that's you, if you've never really decided about Jesus one way or the other, maybe now is the time for you to get back to him, to really have that conversation. It would be the most important conversation of your life. So have it with them. But then for those of you here who uh, have decided to believe in Jesus, there are probably still two broad categories. Category one, some of you honestly, truly never doubt. When Jesus asks you, do you believe you look around at this world that he's made, you think about his experience in your life, and you can't imagine how anybody would ever answer with anything other than, of course I believe. You are so good. Of course I believe. But category two, some of you here experience doubt periodically or even regularly. You truly love Jesus and you've decided to follow him. You're betting your life on him. But there are still times when you're plagued with questions. You still have seasons of doubt. And when Jesus asks you, do you believe? It's hard for you to understand how anyone could ever answer Jesus' question with anything but, I believe, Lord, I need your help with my unbelief. So what's going on here? Why do we have amongst followers of Jesus these two different categories, these two different experiences, those of you here who never doubt and those of you here who, for whom doubt is quite a regular experience? Here's my theory. I think we can get some help from the Apostle Paul and the way that he describes the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. 
This is the passage where he's saying, God gives different gifts to different members of the body. Don't be jealous of someone else's gift. He, he distributes the gifts as he sees fit for the benefit of the whole community. Starting verse 7, he says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. And all of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. There is a gift of faith that the Spirit gives to some members of the community for the benefit of the whole community. Now, I don't know how you read this. To me, I think, of course, all of us receive the faith we need to be in relationship with Jesus if we just will say yes to him. So I think what Paul is talking about here is that special never-doubt faith that some of you experience, where you just, it just, you just don't doubt. Some of you have received that gift. And some of you have received other gifts instead. And I think it's really important to notice this because otherwise each category judges the other, right? The people who never doubt talk to those, and now I'm going to show my cards, those of us who do periodically doubt, and think, oh, you are backsliding. What is going on? How can you not see the goodness of God? And those of us who do struggle with periodic doubt, who have not received that gift of never doubt faith, we look at those of you that never doubt and think, hmm, you're not thinking very deeply. <laughs> you're not reflective. You're not looking around. I, I don't think either of those assessments are accurate. I think if you've received that gift of what I would call never doubt faith, remember you've received it for the benefit of the community. And there may be times when you need to stand in the gap for those of us who have not received that gift and almost sort of believe on our behalf for a little while. And for those of you who have not received that gift of, of never doubt faith, I think you need to know that when Jesus says to you, do you believe, he doesn't expect you to respond with a never doubt faith. That he has empathy for what it's like to be a finite little creature trying to love and live with and understand the infinite God of the universe. And this is really important because for those of us here in this room or watching at home who might experience those seasons of doubt, if we don't understand that we can come to Jesus with those doubts, we're going to do things with that doubt that, is, that are not helpful. <laughs> I think typically there are sort of five things we do with that doubt if we don't think we can bring it to Jesus. We either... Make God smaller, right? We put him in some sort of box where he's a little more manageable. Or we make ourselves bigger. We pretend we have more of a handle on things than we actually do. Or we insulate. We just kind of go, la, 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 I'm not going to engage with anything in the culture or arts or science or anything because I don't want, I don't want to, my faith to be threatened. Or we go on autopilot. We just start going through the motions. Or sometimes folks even walk away. The dissonance gets to be too much. It's very damaging to do anything other than bring that doubt to Jesus and have an honest conversation with him when he says, do you believe? So what is a faithful response? 
if you are in a season of doubt and Jesus says to you, do you believe? Come with me for a minute over to the Gospel of Mark. There's a story in chapter 9, another classic, where a father brings his desperately ill son to Jesus in the hopes that Jesus can heal him. And the father in this story, he goes through this roller coaster of emotions. He's had this son who's had horrible seizures since he was very little, and he's desperate for healing for the son. When he first arrives on the scene, Jesus actually isn't there. There's a big crowd there, but Jesus isn't there. Jesus is actually up on the mount uh, being transfigured. He's kind of otherwise occupied. And, but some of his disciples are down below the mountain, and they give it a shot. They try to heal this boy, and it fails. Can you imagine this son who's been sick his whole life? You finally get him to where you think Jesus is. Jesus isn't there. His disciples say, let us give it a shot, and they fail. Just this roller coaster of emotions. But then Jesus comes down from the mountain, fresh from his transfiguration. And somehow in the chaos of the crowd, the father gets his son in front of Jesus. And the minute the son is in front of Jesus, he crashes to the ground in a, in a super severe seizure. He's just convulsing on the ground. Let's read a bit of the text here. Mark 9, 21 to 23. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? The boy is convulsing on the ground. Jesus says, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, says Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. So imagine this moment. The father is standing there in the middle of the chaos, the boy twitching on the ground, the voices crying out, the crash of hundreds of people jostling for position, trying to get close to Jesus. And I think the father senses that this is the defining moment of his life. I think that wild hope surges through him with such intensity that he's afraid his heart might actually burst. And I also think, think of the roller coaster he's just been on. I also think there is a despair so dark and desperate he can barely stand beneath the weight of it. I think faith and doubt collides violently inside this father. Can you imagine what he must have felt? What if he fails his son? What if he fails himself? I think he realized with astonishment he was also afraid of feeling, failing this stranger named Jesus. And then this is what the father says. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What an honest response. What a real prayer. What a genuine conversation. I do believe. Help me overcome my own belief. That amount of faith is more than enough faith. For Jesus. He heals the son. Don't you love that prayer? When you can't pray anything else, you can pray, Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I'm a mashup of faith and doubt, of belief and unbelief, but I believe in you enough to bring you my unbelief and trust you with it. I trust you enough to believe you will help me grow in my trust. I believe help my own belief. So this is the first thing that jumps out to me. Jesus invites honesty. He's not looking for the correct answer, the rote answer. When he says to you, do you believe? He really wants to know. 
And an acceptable way to engage that conversation is to say, I believe that you will help me with my unbelief. Okay, there's a second thing (laughs) that I hope we can notice. And this one is a little bit more technical, but I think it will be worth the effort. So bear with me for for, for a second. I think the second thing we want to notice is that Jesus invites us not only to believe in him, but to believe into him. So when Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, that phrase, believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Okay, so those of you here who know a lot more about Greek than I do, know that the little preposition in in, believes in me, is this little Greek word, ice, that is more naturally translated into. Any other place that you would find it in Greek, it would be translated into. So the most literal way we could believe, read that phrase, believes in me, would be believes into me. And I think this isn't just like a a minor thing. If we zoom out for a second, we should notice that there are some really unique things about the way that faith and belief are discussed in John's gospel. John actually never uses the noun form of faith or belief. He only uses the verb, to believe, to trust. And in the book of John, the expression believe in Jesus, or when Jesus is speaking, believe in me, appears over a hundred times, and of those hundred times, many, many of them are with this little preposition, ice. So over and over in John's gospel, there is this invitation to believe into Jesus, or from Jesus, believe into me. So John 3.16, that famous verse, if we were going to read it uh, absolutely literally, we would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes into him will not perish but have everlasting life. I don't know if if that hits you that maybe there's something a little bit different. We are called to believe in Jesus, yes, but maybe that we're also called to believe into Jesus and there's something a little bit different about that. To me, believing in Jesus indicates kind of an an intellectual assent. Yes, I believe that this is true. But believing into Jesus indicates an ongoing process, a a journey. I think there's an implication here that following Jesus is not merely a one-time intellectual decision, but an ongoing process involving everything that we are, a a sort of full immersion in and through Jesus. This is another reason why Jesus leads with questions so much. It's an ongoing, dynamic, interactive, experiential, unfolding conversation. There's a great story that uh, E. Stanley Jones tells about a missionary who's lost out in the jungle somewhere, and he was pretty sure there was a path back to the village, but he can't find the path. And a local guy comes walking by, And he says, uh, calls up to the local guy, hey, friend, is there a path around here? And the local guy goes, yeah, sure, follow me. And the local guy has a machete, as one does. And uh, he starts just bushwhacking his way through the jungle. And the missionary's following him. And after about 45 minutes or an hour, he thinks, this local guy doesn't know where the path is. He doesn't know. And so the missionary calls up to the local guy and he says, hey, friend, 
is there a path around here? And the local guy looks back with a big grin and he says, hey friend, around here I am the path. <laughs> I think Jesus is saying, hey, I am the path. Your ideas about me, they point to me, but I am the path. Believe into me. It is life in me that will lead you to faith and trust and flourishing. So believe in me, yes, but also believe into me. That's the second thing I think might help us with this conversation with Jesus. Here's the third thing. The third thing I hope might help us to notice uh, is that Jesus invites us, even as we're having this conversation about our belief and our unbelief, he invites us to trust that there is more going on than we can see. If we go back to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, remember Jesus didn't come right away when they called for him. And both sisters know if he had arrived sooner, their brother would not have died. But they both still get to the, a place in their conversation with him that they, where they're able to affirm that they still trust him. Now, there's a subtext here that Jesus needed to wait to heal Lazarus because of other variables, right? This death and resurrection of his friend was going to be an important sign that he was, in fact, the Messiah and an important foreshadowing of his own death and, res and resurrection. So that's why in verses 14 and 15, before he goes, he says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So, so there's reasons, bigger reasons than what Mary and Martha can see in the moment, why Jesus delays coming. But for them in the moment, all they could see was that they asked Jesus to come, heal their brother that they all loved so much, and that he didn't come. I think, in a sense, when Jesus asks us, do you believe, he's asking, will you trust me even during those times when it seems like your prayers aren't working? Even those times when it seems like things don't make sense, can you trust that there is a bigger picture? I think that's part of this conversation, too. On the screen, we'll put up a, uh, does anyone know what that is? <laughs> Maybe you don't normally call out answers in church. I'll, uh... <laughs> so that is um, a crab nebula in the constellation uh, Lyra. So it's a supernova. It's an exploding star. And here's the thing about this particular supernova. If you look through strong binoculars, it looks like a colorful sm smoke ring. Uh, but what it actually is is an exploding star. And this exploding star expands by 70 million miles a day. Every day it gets bigger by 70 million miles. But here's the thing. If you took a picture that was taken of it 15 years ago from Earth and compared it to a picture we took today from Earth, it would look exactly the same. It would look like nothing had happened. And every day of those 15 years in between, it will have been expanding by 70 million miles a day. Cosmic, explosive things happening. But we can't see it from our perspective. And I think Jesus is trying to tell us that's how it is sometimes with your prayer. You pray and you pray, and it seems like nothing is happening, but trust me, there is a bigger 
picture. God is working to restore and redeem all things. There is more going on than meets the eye. And in the meantime, he asks us, hey, do you believe? Will you talk to me? Will you stay in conversation with me? I think this is one of the reasons why often in Jesus' teaching on prayer, he really emphasized persistence. If you look in, in his teaching in Luke, he tells a lot of stories about persistence. And I don't think that's because he, he wants us to neg God. I think that's out of empathy, his empathy for the fact that he would know sometimes from our perspective, it will seem like nothing is happening. But he wants us to keep staying in conversation because if we go silent, if we go, okay, I guess you're just not going to answer this one, nothing kills a relationship faster than the silent treatment. So Jesus says, keep coming, keep talking with me. Trust me, there's more going on than meets the eye. So we're going to sing a song. I'll sing the verses, and then it'll be easy for you to catch how the, how the choruses go about leaning in and trusting that there's more going on than meets the eye.
conversation Jesus wants to have with us about belief. We've noticed that he invites honesty about our faith and about our doubts, a chance to look into our own hearts and talk it over with him. That he invites us to believe not only in him, but into him in this ongoing process that he himself is the path. And he invites us to trust that there is more going on than we can see. Let's notice one more thing. I think in this story with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and really in all all the stories we have about Jesus in the Gospels, he invites us to live with the end in view. Remember what Jesus says to Martha, he who believes in me will never die. But of course, Martha reached the end of her earthly life. Mary reached the end of her earthly life. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, eventually had a natural death at the end of his earthly life. Jesus was talking, of course, about another kind of life, a bigger picture, another kind of life that we will have forever. And I believe even now, as he says to each one of us, do you believe? He invites us to believe into him with that end in view. Now, I love that Susan was with us today uh, from North Korea uh, when I was a, a kid growing up at my little Baptist church in Coquitlam, we always loved Missionary Sunday. It was about once a quarter, and it would be some missionaries home on furlough, and they would come and, and bring the message. And uh, this, I, I'm thinking of a particular Sunday when um, the uh, this couple had come home. It was Missionary Sunday. I'm sitting in the in the front pew with some youth. I'm maybe 12 or 13 years old. We're excited because often when the missionaries would come, they'd wear cool clothes, and um, they used to have this thing called a slide projector. Uh, not as high tech as what we had today from Susan, but they would show us pictures of somewhere exotic. Those pictures today were so great. So this particular couple came. I don't remember where they were from, but it was somewhere kind of jungly, and they had cool pictures. And um, the husband was talking, and he said, uh, you know, this one time uh, in our, in our uh, house, which is, was kind of in a jungle, this massive snake came in one day. He said it was bigger than a man. And he said, my wife and I, we got out right away, and um, we found a local guy. This is now the second uh, local guy with a machete story of the morning. We found a local guy, and we said, hey, can you take care of this snake problem in our house? And he said, sure, no problem. So he went in the house with his machete, and he came out uh, a few minutes later, and he said, okay, it's kind of a good news, bad news situation. The good news is I've killed the snake. I topped his head, clean off, he's dead, he's a goner. The bad news is the way a snake's respiratory and circulatory system, nervous system work, it's going to be a couple hours before he understands that he's dead. <laughs> so the missionary is telling the story. He says, so my wife and I were standing out there in the tropical heat. We're feeling kind of sick. And we're waiting as this headless snake thrashes around in our home, uh, knocking pictures off the wall, knocking over lamps, spraying stuff everywhere. We're 
us youth in the front row, we're like, best sermon ever. (laughs) And he says, we're standing out there waiting for the snake to understand that he's dead. And all of a sudden, my wife and I, our eyes get huge and we have a mutual epiphany and we say, oh my goodness, this is the story of the universe. There is a serpent. Christ has already, he's already crushed the serpent's head. He's dead, he's a goner, but he, he just doesn't know it yet. <sighs> and we are living in the thrashing season. Yeah, that's what Pastor Justin was talking about at, at the call to worship. We're living in the thrashing season. For some of you, it's mild right now. It's mostly peaceful. For some of you, it's so intense. But here's the thing. Jesus calls us to live with the end in view. My mom loved to go to movies, and uh, she had a very firm policy that she refused to go to any movie that ended sad. She was fine if it was sad in the middle, but she did not believe in movies that, that ended sad. She said, you get enough of that in real life, I'm not paying for that. So she used to call me if she was considering going to see a movie, and she would say, don't give me too many plot spoilers, just tell me, does it end okay? Because she knew if if she knew that it ended okay, she'd be able to ride, you know, the ups and downs of whatever happened in the movie. Here's the thing, my friend. This is what I think Jesus wants us to know as we have this conversation about belief and unbelief. It ends okay. It ends more than okay. Because if you took all the brokenness and bitterness and sin and grief and sickness and death in the world, and God knows there's a lot of it, Jesus cried when his friend died. God knows there's a lot of it. But if you took all of that and you held it up next to the goodness and the sovereignty and the power and the faithfulness of God, all that evil wouldn't cover the head of a pin next to what God has for us now and for forever. This ends more than okay. That day in the garden, he fell for the Just keep falling one lie at a time. It seems like forever we've been under this curse. But love was here first. Now everything's broken and everything fails. So it 
for inviting us into honest conversation about our belief and our unbelief. Thank you for the opportunity to believe into you, to walk with you through the jungles of our lives. Will you please help us trust that there is more going on than we can see? Will you please help us live with the hope and the future of people who know that this ends more than okay? I pray for each person listening to this prayer right now that your love would go a little deeper, that you would grow our our trust so that we could trust even our unbelief to you. Thanks for your love for us. We do pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.